Hello everyone, this is episode 15 of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray. Speaking of scary things, there's nothing that terrifies me more than people who place excessive trust in tiny, overprecise numbers attached to vague events in an uncertain future. You know the kind of thing I'm talking about. There's a 1.3794 by 10 to the minus 8 chance of an unintended gas release. Or, our weather model predicts a 56.4% chance of rain tomorrow. Or, if there's an earthquake, the resulting tsunami won't be more than 5.794 metres. It's safe to say that these sorts of statements are 100.00% full of biohazardous material. Just to put things in perspective, if they say something will fail at 10 to the minus 4 per hour, they're saying it will fail once per continuous year of operation. If they say it will fail at 10 to the minus 6 per hour, that's once in 100 years. 10 to the minus 9 is once in 100,000 years. As a rough rule of thumb, before they can state this confidently, they need twice as much data as the period they're predicting. So if they've operated their power plant for 200,000 years, or even if they've just got a thousand spare power plants for 200 years without the hazard occurring, they've now got reasonable evidence to support their confident claim. But what if they don't even say 1 by 10 to the minus 9, they say 1.45 by 10 to the minus 9? Now they're implying that their data supports two more orders of magnitude of precision. So they'd better be prepared to back it up with 10 million years worth of data. But I don't need data, they say. There are other ways of knowing. Look, I've got 300 pages of complicated looking calculations supported by some data. Where's the data from, I ask? From our safety management system, they say. But I don't trust your safety management system. I say it's badly put together and under-resourced. Of course, they say. Why do I need a good safety management system when the chance of an accident is only 1.45 by 10 to the minus 9? Now, claims of probabilities this low are ridiculous, but why stop there? Why not predict 10 to the minus 12 or 10 to the minus 38? These are real numbers that I've seen in real risk assessments. And by now, they're claiming that our sun will grow old and die and the heat death of the universe will be a distant memory before their system fails. Sorry, my mistake. Before it fails again. They've already had two failures in the past six months, but they discounted those because those were aberrations. By now, I'm tempted to hide under the bed or just throw my hands in the air and give up. But I want to understand, where are these people coming from? So this episode, we're going to have a chat to sociologist John Downer, about his recent paper, Disowning Fukushima, Managing the Credibility of Nuclear Reliability Assessment in the Wake of Disaster. It's a fairly long interview, but I didn't want to cheat you out of our regular accident slot. So the tail segment discusses the loss of the Mars Climate Orbiter. Let's get started with the interview. Could you start by introducing yourself? My name is John Downer. I am a lecturer in Risk and Resilience at Bristol University School of Sociology, Politics and International Studies. We're talking because you published a paper in the Regulation and Governance Journal. The paper was called Disowning Fukushima. Could you tell us a bit about what led you to write the paper and what the main point you were making in the paper is? Sure. Uh, I came to writing about resilience through... Well, I was an epistemologist originally. I was interested in the logical integrity of truth claims or knowledge claims of all kinds. And I've long been interested in reliability assessments of nuclear, well, high technologies in general, but nuclear reactors in particular and, and civil aircraft, because we, we base enormous policy decisions on the idea that we can take these systems and derive from them assessments of how 
uh, reliable they are. Quantitative assessments of, of how reliable they are. So, say, Arriva with its new reactor uh, claims that you know the system will fail no more than one one time every 1.6 million years. And if you're an epistemologist, these claims, this idea that you can take this enormous, enormously complicated system with a stochastic operating environment and all sorts of human elements and derive from it a level of you know, mathematically using a model derived from it uh, a level of reliability to such a high degree of certainty is so implausible that it's, it's almost laughable. Uh, and yet these, these reliability assessments factor really heavily in our policy making around nuclear issues, nuclear power. And so a couple of years ago I found myself, I was working at a interdisciplinary unit out in California. I was there as a sort of token socialist, but there were also a bunch of nuclear engineers. And, and so this debate uh, kind of came up there. I said, well, this this can't work, this thing that you, you believe in. And then a few months after we'd been having this debate, uh, Fukushima happened. And I thought, well, surely this clearly is unambiguous now. The risk assessment you, you profess must work clearly don't. And then I became evident to me that people weren't, still weren't buying that. And I became very interested in, in the fact that why do we still believe that we can accurately derive the reliability of a nuclear power plant, given that those assessments keep failing us, right, with, with Chernobyl, with wind scale, three mile island, now Fukushima, and, and all sorts of other lesser failures in between. How is it that these don't just discredit this, this whole practice, right? So what I, I tried to do with it, I started collecting all these different defenses and, and I kind of grouped them together into four basic ways in which you can defend the credibility of reliability system, even though it seems to have failed you. Uh, and that's, that's what I've tried to lay out in the paper. So in a sense, you're, you were observing your own colleagues and the way they weren't updating their own beliefs in the face of evidence like Fukushima that those beliefs weren't well-founded? Uh, a little bit. Mostly they were the impetus that, that got me interested in, in the topic. Uh, more broadly, and they, they gave me, you know, I was privileged through them and, and through my environment to get access to a lot of people that were quite uh, well-placed, uh, you know, prominent in talking about this kind of stuff. In the paper, you describe four ways that people try to redeem the credibility of their risk assessment after a disaster. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I outlined four basic defences, as I call them, that you can invoke to uh, say that, you know, even though Fukushima failed, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't trust our, our risk assessments for all the other nuclear plants, right? So you can see you're still safe, don't worry. The first of these I call the interpretive defense. It's basically the claim that the plant didn't actually, or the assessment didn't actually fail. And that's, there's different ways you can do it. You can just kind of outright lie, like the, say the Soviets in the very early days of Chernobyl. But that's, that's not plausible long term, right? You can, you can kind of pass the definition of failure in ways that say, well, well yeah, the, the reactor might have melted down, but it's, it was contained by the containment building, so the system writ large didn't fail, and so, you know, the assessment was fine. That clearly wasn't plausible, really, with, with Fukushima, certainly after the first few days. You can argue that the failure was what they call beyond design basis. You can argue that the calculations were fine, there were no errors, but plant um, was just struck by something that the calculations weren't asked to envisage, right? So the earthquake that struck Fukushima was over six times higher than it was designed for, right? And you can say, well, look, my risk assessment's fine. This was just a beyond design basis. The second defense is what I call the relevance defense. You can argue that our reactors aren't like their reactors or our assessment standards are different. I've changed over time. The, the, it was a very old reactor, so it might not be the same as new reactors. You can say that the standards, it's we used back then or Japan used back then are different from the standards we use today or you can say that the way those standards were implemented in, in Japan were, were different from the way we implement them in, in the UK or the US you can say that this failure isn't relevant or representative of our 
nuclear regulatory regime. The third defense is quite simple. It's what I call the, the compliance defense. Put very simply, it's, it's that, yes, our, our assessments were sound, you know, the, the calculations were good, it's just that people didn't obey the rules. There was malfeasance of, of whatever kind. You see this a lot in the newspapers, you know, Tepco were hiding data or, or someone didn't pull the lever they were supposed to pull or, or, or someone was bribed or, there, you know, there was some sort of human uh, malfeasance involved, subverted the assessments in ways that they couldn't have predicted. And the fourth defense is, is even simpler. It's what I call the redemption defense. It's like, yes, there was a flaw in our assessments. We thought that uh, earthquakes would behave this way, but it turns out earthquakes behave that way, and, and we fixed it. We've changed our assessment tools, and now they're fine, right? They're, so that failure won't happen anymore. Sleep safe, people. We're, we're, you know, we've, we've reassessed our, our reactors under the, our revised regime, and we found they're all safe. So, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read the paper, but... Am I right in thinking you basically say that none of these reasons is actually a good reason to believe that your risk assessment now is good? No, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, none of them really stand up to scrutiny. The argument that they didn't actually fail, well, clearly it failed in, in most ways. The beyond design basis argument doesn't really stand up because, well, it stands up if you're an engineer who or a risk assessor who performed a calculation, maybe it would protect your job, but it doesn't really redeem risk assessment in general or reliability assessment in general because uh, the design basis is supposed to be an integral part of the reliability assessment itself. Right? That if, if your reliability assessment is only as good as the design basis and you're completely unsure of your design basis, that's not a great basis for policy. Right? That's just another way of saying your, your reliability assessments don't work. The, the likelihood of earthquakes is, is supposed to be an integral part of that assessment. Uh, the relevance defense doesn't really stand up because you know, the design of the reactor might have been old. Well, first of all, that doesn't really say much about assessment regimes. And secondly, it's still a pretty common reactor. Uh, 30 more of these reactors around the world, with quite a few of them in the States. The argument that assessment standards have evolved over time, that's true. They have changed since the late 60s. But as assessment standards evolved, we have, you know, we've periodically reassessed the nuclear plants around the world and, and deem them safe. And the idea that the regulatory environment wasn't as different, well, I mean, there's one op-ed in the Washington Post put it soon after the disaster, if the, if the Japanese can't regulate a complex technology, who can, right? The, the, we, we suppose that we're, we're any, really any different from the Japanese. And there's plenty of evidence that of all the, the many, many malfeasances in inverted commas that the newspapers are drug out after the accident. You see the exactly the same kind of things going on wherever you turn your, your gaze. So, Charles, speaking, there's no real reason to think that Japan was exceptional in, in any real way, right? The compliance defense, uh, this idea that people didn't obey the rules, if risk assessments aren't taking into account the idea that people don't always obey the rules, then they're just not working as risk assessments. Right? People never obeyed the rules. Uh, we've never designed an institution in human history that followed every rule all the time, right? We're going to use reliability assessments as a sort of basis of policy. We we have to factor in the idea that, that people don't always obey the rules. There are going to be yeah, these kinds of slippages and, and periodically someone's going to do something foolish, just outright treacherous. The idea that they're, uh, the final idea that they're flawed but now they're fixed, this sort of redemption defense, uh, well, that, that may be true, but uh, it doesn't tell us how many other flaws might be out there, right? They, they, they tell us about that one flaw, but the, the larger lesson from, from Fukushima might be, rather than not that you know, we misconstrued earthquake probabilities, it's that there are all sorts of hidden variables in our risk assessments that we, that we're unsure of. And, and the fact that we 
maybe fix the earthquake one, which I'm not at all sure we have. Doesn't really say anything about the, the wider sphere. Who's to say that that's the last flaw you're going to find, right? Then why should we trust risk assessments now? Your underlying message here is pretty critical of risk assessments, but it also says something about what we believe about risk assessments. Is that a fair interpretation that this is really a mismatch between what risk assessment can do and what we believe or trust that it can do? Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm not, yeah, I think risk assessment or reliability assessment in general can be, can be a very useful tool for engineers. I mean, they, they use it for prioritizing different design options and, and seeing the relative risk of different parts within a system. And I think that's fine. And a lot of engineers would support this use and would say, you know, that's what it's for. But there's no denying that, that risk assessments have become an integral part of policy. Right? We treat them as if not as kind of heuristic tools, but as objective facts. And, and we're encouraged to think about it that way. Right? If you look at the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission's guidelines for communicating to the public, it makes that very clear. You, you talk in decorative terms. You talk, you talk about risk assessments as if they're facts. The math is the math, right? This, this system will fail only, you know, once every 1.6 million years, you're safe, really. The, no matter what the consequences of a nuclear disaster might be, the, the, you needn't worry because these things aren't going to happen. We've proved it. And, and this is swallowed wholesale by uh, any cost-benefit analysis you see of nuclear repair, any, any, you know, the chart showing its relative risks or costs or, or expenses versus you know, any other kind of power completely factors out the likelihood of it failing. Nuclear disasters are extraordinarily expensive, which, you know, hundreds of billions of pounds. And when we make policy about nuclear power, we don't plan for nuclear failures for these reasons. So are you opposed in principle to the idea of using technological risk assessments for policy making? I am and I aren't. If we could understand as a society, as built into them are a vast number of judgments and opinions, then why not? But and personally, I would keep quantitative risk assessments out of policy making. I think that, that it's far too easy to construe them and then portray them as objective facts and promulgate this idea that we can mathematically absolutely derive the risk of a nuclear power plant in the same way that we can derive tensile strength of an iron girder or something. And these two things are not the same. We're making nuclear policy badly, I think, if we're not understanding that these are expert judgments. Uh, I think they routinely overestimate the, the reliability of, of reactors just systematically. And I think it just leads to bad policies. It trades on the sort of scientific understanding of the world that works well in many contexts, but, but this one leads us astray in, in, in consequential ways. As a sociologist looking at the way engineers practice engineering, you can probably see a lot of things that engineers don't see about themselves. What do you think a risk assessment actually is in practice? Is it fair to call it a calculation or to call it an engineering judgment, or is it something else that we're doing? Definitely risk assessments are calculations. I think the question is, what do those calculations represent and how, and how useful are they? And do they really represent the real actual probabilities of, of, uh, of failures? And I think they don't. So as well as being calculations, they serve a lot of sort of social functions. I think they do serve a sort of rhetorical function. Uh, absolutely. You know, the risks of nuclear power is so great that we need big reassurances. I think absolutely that these risk calculations leverage our, our sort of trust in science and numbers to promulgate a false sense of security. There's some conscious thought that went into, making, <laughs> into doing this. The, 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 if you look at the history of when we started using these kinds of quantitative risk assessments, uh, they evolved. 
uh, at a time when the, the consequences of nuclear failure were looking untenable and, and uh, nuclear authorities and nuclear industry and nuclear regulators were looking at a way to looking for a way to justify nuclear power in that context. They pushed these quantitative standards in an environment where, where lots of engineers were resistant to them, saying, well, look, this, this isn't really very plausible. It sounds like you're saying that risk assessment is a communication tool, but not a communication tool to communicate an accurate picture, but to communicate reassurance. Well, I think they serve many functions. I think within engineering, they serve, they serve a different function. I think that they're a very useful tool for maybe getting engineers to think through different kinds of failure probabilities and, and uh, maybe prioritizing different uh, systems and, and the relative risks of different systems within a system. I think when we invoke them to speak to publics and policymakers, they take on a whole different hue. They 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 become yeah they become a rhetorical device, a communications device, a way of asserting credibility that doesn't quite match. Yeah, I don't think it tells us anything real about risks. I think it becomes a very, very useful device for you know framing engineering work and engineering decision making within you know design context, but not within a, a regulatory context. Could you suggest what the takeaway action then is from your work? If this is what risk assessments are, uh-huh. and then what should we do as a consequence of... I think we need to understand that, that risk assessments overestimate the reliability of nuclear plants. I think we need to understand that they are judgments and judgments made by interested parties, and we need to reevaluate our, our decisions in, in light of that. We need, my sense would be that, that, that uh, we'd be much more reluctant to build nuclear plants under these conditions, right? So we, we build them under the promise that they're safe, not under the opinion that they're safe. We spend a lot more money, a lot more effort planning for their failures than we do. When Fukushima happened, it was clear that, that very little planning had gone into appropriate medications, evacuation plans, stuff like that. And, and even though we do these things in, well, they did these things in, in Japan and we do these things in, in Britain and, and, and the US, of course, that we, we, they're, they're almost laughable in their, I mean, they're so inadequate. I think we think much more carefully about where we place nuclear reactors. I mean, where I live in Bristol, there's nuclear reactors just upwind, <laughs> 30, 30 miles. The Higley Point is, is right in, if Higley Point melted down the way that Fukushima did, Bristol would be completely uninhabitable, right? It would be in part of the, the exclusion zone. We wouldn't do that, I think, if we, we understood that these things might actually fail. Uh, we, you know, we couldn't, dis- or at least that we couldn't discount the possibility that they would fail. We, we would think much more about resilience as well as reliability. Research into risk perception has indicated that people seem to have an unusual dread of nuclear power compared to other risks. In other words, they think it's worse to die from radiation than to die from other things, even though they're dead either way. So you can understand why uh, regulators might want to try to reassure the public do you think in trying to reassure people about nuclear power, we've actually gone too far and started deceiving ourselves about the risk? I definitely think that nuclear regulators have the best intentions. I too easily make them sound as if they're low quality of villains when, when they genuinely believe in this technology and they genuinely believe that it's safe. As for the risk perception literature, I'm, I'm sceptical of that literature, personally. Uh, I think that literature, in making these claims that we overperceive risk, draw on exactly the kinds of calculations that I wanted to discredit, right? The, you know, we're, we're very worried about nuclear risk, but the, the NRC tells us that, you know, reactors melt down no more than once in every 1.6 million years, and Chernobyl was a, and Three Mile Island were, were and Fukushima were exceptions, right? That will never happen again. You know, personally, I don't think we do overestimate the risk of nuclear disasters. 
uh, and radiation in general. And I think the, the I think a lot of that psychology research evolved to justify nuclear power, and certainly in light of nuclear power, right? It was this perceived mismatch between how much people were concerned about nuclear power and the sort of regulatory calculations of how safe nuclear power was that led, that inspired an awful lot of this psychology of risk perception literature. People, yeah. The particular paper that you published and a lot of our discussion has focused on nuclear power. Uh-huh. Do, do you think that the problems with risk assessment are bespoke to nuclear power plant risk assessment, or is this likely to be just one example of a general problem with quantitative risk assessment? I think it's a, it's a pretty narrow problem. I think it, it's, it's risk assessments of very complex technologies that we can't really derive risks uh, sort of post hoc from failure data. Right? The most risk assessments we we look at how often a thing happens and we apply certain Keras Paribus kind of ideas about, you know, the this is likely to stay stable over time and then we can kind of you know the, your risk of getting a heart attack is is that's how you know you you arrive at that risk or the risk of your uh, getting in a car accident or something like that. The the risks of, of these systems we have to prove that they're reliable before we build them and without evidence of how often they fail, right? Uh, and I think that's what makes them special. Plus, you know, the, the demands of making them so reliable and proving that reliability are so much higher because they're such complicated systems. So I think, you know, very sophisticated technologies, it's a fairly small category. It's very sophisticated safety critical technologies are, are a fairly small category. I would include civil aircraft in that, that, that list, although I think, uh, for, again, complicated reasons, civil, the reliability of civil aircraft is, is, is but we know it much better than we do nuclear reactors. Okay, that's probably a good place to leave it there. John Downer, thank you very much. Thank you. In the late 1990s, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratories sent two important missions to Mars, the Mars Climate Orbiter and the Mars Polar Lander. In a spectacular demonstration of modern industrial capability, JPL sent over $100 million worth of complex hardware on a journey of 500 million kilometres only to crash in the last moments of the voyage. Twice. One of the easiest and most precise ways to keep a spacecraft pointing in the right direction is to use a device called a momentum wheel. Using Newton's first law of action and reaction, the craft is spun in one direction by accelerating a wheel on the same axis, but in the opposite direction. If the craft wobbled randomly, this would be enough. In practice, though, The forces on a moving spacecraft are not random. It gets steadily pushed in the same direction. For example, on the Mars Climate Orbiter, the solar panels were only on one side, so solar wind pushed the orbiter to rotate in that direction. When this happens, the momentum wheel is spun faster and faster and faster, and eventually this energy needs to be released. In what is called a momentum dump, or more precisely, an angular momentum desaturation, AMD. There are a few ways of doing an AMD, but for deep spacecraft such as the Climate Orbiter, small jets are fired on the outside of the craft to spin it in the opposite direction to the usual forces, allowing the momentum wheel to be slowed down again. There are a few reasons why the jets are not used simply to replace the momentum wheels. Firstly, they're simply not precise enough. Secondly, they need to actually propel mass away from the spacecraft, so they have limited fuel. And thirdly, The jets never supply perfect rotation-only energy. There's always a little bit of translation or sideways movement. 
In other words, they don't just spin the spacecraft, they also push it off course. These small movements add up over time, and they need to be taken into account when navigating. Every time a momentum dump occurred on the Mars Climate Orbiter, data from the spacecraft about the length of the jet blast was sent to ground control, and processed using software provided by the designers, Lockheed Martin, to record the amount of sideways movement. These results were wrong. By a factor of exactly 4.45, the difference between newtons and pounds, the SI and imperial units for measuring thrust. For the first half of the flight, this faulty software wasn't actually used due to other file format problems. Well, this may sound like a good thing, in fact, it was a missed opportunity to notice the problem. Whilst the climate orbiter was close to Earth, the position of the craft could be determined reasonably accurately by direct observation. Using Doppler ranging, JPL could effectively see where the orbiter actually was and compare that to its calculated position. When they first ran the data through the faulty Lockheed software, it suggested that the orbiter was a little bit off course. After this point, each correction they made was based on an increasingly inaccurate picture of the orbiter's real location. During this time, they were still receiving some real-world location data, but the path of the spacecraft as it approached Mars was close to perpendicular to the line from Earth to Mars, so this data was highly uncertain. Depending on exactly who you believe, there were early worries about the discrepancies between the real-world data and the calculated position, but these didn't get much attention. As the orbiter neared the end of its journey, it started to accelerate due to Mars's gravity. Increased speed meant better Doppler position fixes and increasing realisation that the orbiter wasn't going to skim the atmosphere of Mars as intended. Instead, it was going to hit the atmosphere and never re-emerge. Now, the circumstances leading to this 4.45 units error don't make anyone look good. The AMD files, the ones in the wrong units, were required to match a software interface specification produced for a previous spacecraft program, the Mars Global Surveyor. Lockheed decided to use the same software to produce these files and just to update it where necessary. One of the lines they updated was an equation including the 4.45 conversion factor. This factor was buried deep in a complicated equation and it was not properly commented. They replaced this line of code with a new equation from one of their vendors, which was supplied in imperial units. Only this time, they forgot to build in the conversion factor. They then wrote their test cases based on the same vendor-supplied equation, and they made the same mistake. So the software passed the tests. This sort of error is very difficult to detect once it's been introduced even through customer testing. The software was producing results that were wrong enough to be dangerous, but not wrong enough to be ridiculous. Even when the software was used in anger, and it started suggesting larger-than-expected course corrections, people raised eyebrows, but it didn't set off alarm bells. In a paper explaining how the error occurred, the Lockheed engineers, without trying to dodge any of the blame, described the difficulty in detecting the error once it had been introduced. To quote, The obvious lesson is not to make mistakes in the first place, but it is difficult to implement an error-free design and development. The probability of catching errors as they're missed in the first line of defence decreases as it goes undetected 
to the next levels. End quote. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter whether the technical solution was more rigour in the requirements and coding, or better defences to detect the error. They both required JPL and Lockheed to recognise the criticality of that particular piece of software. Inadvertently, they just placed too much trust in the software, during design and during operations. This is the point where we introduce another element common to disaster stories, the decoy phenomenon. The incorrect software was first used on the third trajectory adjustment manoeuvre. Now, during this manoeuvre, they had a problem with stowing and redeploying the solar array. This caused them a bit of a scare, followed by a rushed program to diagnose the problem, work out a fix, and get the fix ready before the next manoeuvre. During that manoeuvre, all of their attention was on whether the fix from the previous manoeuvre had actually worked. So there are clues during both of these that the software wasn't working as it should, but no one had time or attention to spare on these minor anomalies, when according to them there were much more salient problems. It's unclear exactly when each member of the navigation and flight teams recognised that these minor anomalies were actually a serious problem, or what they did to communicate these concerns. There was an option on the table for a fifth course correction to move the Mars Climate Orbiter further away from the planet. But this option gave way to a decision to improve the orbit after the initial atmospheric encounter. They didn't get a chance to do this. The first encounter was the last encounter. We don't exactly know where the Mars Climate Orbiter is now. The two possibilities are that the debris is off in interplanetary space somewhere, or that it's scattered over Mars. There's one small positive note, though. Missions to the planetary surface are carefully sterilised so that they don't contaminate Mars with Earth bacteria. Whatever happened to the climate orbiter, it almost certainly ended its working life being superheated to the point where there was no risk of contamination. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. In the show notes, I've put links to John Downer's paper as well as to some resources about the Mars Climate Orbiter and spacecraft software safety more generally. Thank you to everyone who's tweeted and retweeted about the show, and as always, particular thanks to those of you who've sent me kind emails. DisasterCast comes to you free of charge, but my motivation is listener-supported, so please do tell your friends and colleagues about the show. (laughs) 